Welcome back to Dairy Public Radio. Reporting from the basement of the Dairy Civic Center, this is CM Alexander with the news. Haven citizens have reported a toxic green glow appearing over their city at night. A representative from the Maine Air Force released a statement listing possible sources of such light. We at the station have a betting pool on which truth it is this time. For my money, I'm betting it all on packs of moths. You're listening to Dairy Public Radio. This is Dairy Public Radio. Welcome back to Dairy Public Radio, a bi-weekly Stephen King book club podcast. I'm one of your hosts, CM Alexander, alongside Joshua Kahn. Hey, everybody. And Benjamin Graham. I'm back, constant readers. What's Yay, up? Hey, Ben! <laughs> and today we are covering book one of the Tommyknockers, if you are following along. And if not, major spoilers ahead. And Josh is leading our discussion. All right. Uh, man, I'm so excited to jump into this book. First of all, I should say that uh, now that we're back doing these books... Uh, we finally can get back to the books that have been picked by our Patreon supporters. And Tommyknockers was chosen by Casey Bauer. And she and the other Patreon people who had their books put on hold have been so gracious about all this. So I'm very, very excited. And can I say, Casey, good fucking choice. <laughs> <laughs> I, there's so there's so much more in this book to talk about <laughs> than I ever would have guessed. Is this one of his best no. <laughs> Is it a fucking roller coaster? Yes. <laughs> yes, please. Absolutely. Uh, so book one is titled The Ship in the Earth, and it opens up with Roberta Anderson, or Bobby, and her dog Peter walking through the forest. She's going to uh, chop up some wood because she has a house in the middle of the country. And on her way back, she she stumbles upon something. Uh, something very interesting in the woods. CM, what does she stumble upon? She stumbles upon a tin can. Oh, no, wait. That's, <laughs> she thinks that's what it is. But it is something way, way cooler, which... Okay, so Ben, I've actually been really excited to ask you this specifically because I don't know that Josh is as big a fan. Right. Do you know the influence for the Tommyknockers? Well, I know that at some point he mentions the day when the Earth stood still, but I get very big The Thing vibes. Okay, what about The Color Out of Space? No, I d that makes sense, though. That is a great story. Yeah, so for our, our listeners who may not be familiar with Lovecraft's The Color Out of Space, it was a like a 1920s story. This guy's telling us a story about a town in Massachusetts that experienced a meteorite crash. It initially made all of the vegetation grow really huge and like looked really great and people were excited. But when they cut into it, it tasted really horrible. There was something off and wrong with it. And the animals started to become deformed and the people eventually all went crazy and started to die. And there was a 1987 movie starring Will Wheaton based off of it. It's okay, but it doesn't quite capture all the Lovecraft majesty. But then... Richard Stanley, in 2019, did an adaptation that is really freaking cool. Starring Nicolas Cage. Uh, what? Yeah. Yes. And Richard Stanley himself, like, we could have a whole episode just talking about <laughs> that guy's crazy journey, too. What's yeah. the Nicolas Cage movie called? Color Out of Space. Oh, yeah. I've never heard of this. Yeah, it's like uh, about a sentient color that is bad. Yeah, and it's like this this color that you, like, we've never seen it before. Yeah. So it's a color out of space. That's amazing. Well, we got to watch that. 
Yeah, very, it, very excited. That that makes sense. There yeah. uh, there are I feel like a lot of influences on and later late in this first part he kind of hangs a lampshade on it. <laughs> the one of our two antagonists or antagonists <laughs> pro, protagonists although um <laughs> sees and sees this uh this flying saucer there's like an extended riff of him going it had to be a flying saucer how fucking lame is that yeah i love that that's so cliche no (laughs) self-respecting sci-fi author would put a flying saucer in their book and we're like Come on, Stephen King. Oh, yeah. I love Steve. I can feel him winking at me as he's writing. that. So we uh, she stumbles across this tiny piece of metal sticking out of the earth and she grabs it to pull it out. And when she touches it, it vibrates, which I just think is eerie as hell. It's a dildo. (laughs) (laughs) Somebody buried their sharp metal dildo out in the wilderness. It's my woods dildo. Sometimes you just got to get freaky in the woods. You guys, you've got this wrong. It doesn't vibrate. She specifically says like, oh, it's too in the ground. Like it's stuck. It's like bedrock. No, it's a psychic vibration. That's nothing. (laughs) This is the first instance of just absolute nonsense (laughs) that we get in this book. We, We should mention... Tommy Knockers has like a reputation, mm-hmm. yeah, right? It does. I feel like every person that is like, I don't like Stephen King, and has never read Stephen King, but has a very clear idea of what his books are. Mm. This is the book they're imagining. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I I believe Ben, you were the one who told me this was that Tommy Knocker was written uh, deep in the throes of cocaine. That this is the quintessential King Coke book. Got it. Uh, it. You you can tell, especially in the character of Gardner. Oh my like God, I love Gardner. The chapter that oh, we're gonna have a talk. Yeah, it, it's he was coked out of his mind, and I did some research on Wikipedia that King himself, in a later interview, had this to say about uh, Tommy Knockers. It's a horrible book. <laughs> So, yeah, it, it, it's a psychic vibration. See, whatever I, that is. Yeah, I took it as more of that sensation being that it felt she felt vibrating when it couldn't possibly be vibrating. And I think that's what make, made it a yeah. little eerie to me when you have those two things that like this could not possibly be happening yet. I'm feeling it. Well, she decides that she tries to wiggle it. It doesn't come out. So she starts digging and digs a foot or more out and it's still going on and poor peter her adorable old old ass dog that she keeps every time she talks about peter she's like well he'll be dead soon and that's rough (laughs) and peter's just shivering with fear and then finally she can't stop digging when peter barks she's like oh i've but i've been digging so much we should get the hell home yeah, she lost she loses time yeah i wanted to ask a question to you guys sure um uh, about bobby anderson mm-hmm. this character i really love bobby she's a really cool character she's just kind of a hermit that is a writer of course <laughs> that lives in the main woods by herself with her old dog but when i read this in high school i thought bobby was old i could see why you would think that Right? She's, yeah. She's 30? She's in her 30, in her mid-30s. Yeah. She is, I believe... She's like our age. 37 or 39. 
She is not old. <laughs> she has a very old soul. She does. She yeah, everything that she does, she just like sits and reads her memoirs and, and stuff in this house. It's constantly talking about her gray hair and she's constantly thinking about death and how old <laughs> she's getting. When I first read this book, I imagined her as like an old lady. I only didn't imagine her that way because it, I mean, when it described, because <laughs> right. I'm, I'm 36. I just turned 36. Yay. Hey, happy and, birthday. Right. Yeah. I was like, oh, she's like my age just about. And so that kind of stuck with me. But when you brought it up, it was like, yeah, you know, if, if you hadn't mentioned her age, I would have assumed her to be retirement age. Yeah. yeah because she's fine living out in this isolation and she's got her pattern of taking care of herself. Yeah. So yeah, she feels, she definitely feels older. I also, and they talk about it later that Gardner met Bobby when he was her teacher. Gross. And, I was just gonna. Yeah. <laughs> <Thank> you. <laughs> and, and so I kept losing track because my brain wanted to say, "Oh, they're the same age." Mm-hmm. No, they're not. Co- uh, college professor. College professor. Slightly yes. better. It Ugh, is a little bit better, I guess. Position of power he has over her is not, but sure. At least she's more than eighteen. <laughs> uh, and then when she gets home, it was the the second instance we hear of Jim Gardner. One was that he bought Peter for Bobby. The next is that we see that Bobby is an author. She has uh, books that she's published, and Jim Gardner published her first book of poems. And then they slept together. So the position of power thing, you just said yeah. it, and it's really coming back. I, I'm going to make you eat the words, I like Jim Gardner, Josh. <laughs> All right, I, I'm, I'm here for it. I actually like how this book is structured. Mm. Because the first several chapters, I know I talked to you guys the first time. We, we had to read this first section twice because of world events and so on. But the first time we were reading it through, I know that you guys were like, we're three chapters in and nothing is happening. (laughs) But I like how it's structured because we spend these first couple of chapters with Bobby getting to know her and her routine Mm -hmm. and what she's like before switching over to the chaos that is Jim Gardner's life. Uh, that night she sleeps pretty soundly, except for the little situation where she has a nightmare about green light making her teeth fall out. Who hasn't had that dream? It's so upsetting, though. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's super fucked up. I like that when she looks in the mirror, though, she, like, wiggles her tooth <laughs> just to uh, be sure. It's described so vividly. I You have the dream. I don't... I've never had the dream and... Felt the teeth pool in my mouth. Oh, like so gross. Ugh. The she comes to find out that she slept for twelve goddamn hours. Like she was out, but she can't stop thinking about digging up whatever this is. At this point, she's decided it's some clandestine coffin, and that so there's there's going to be someone or something in there. So she goes out and takes some tools with her and decides to dig. And then, again, she loses track of time. It's suddenly 3 p.m. and she's lost herself completely. Peter barks at her. She acknowledges it, goes back to it, and then another four and a half hours pass. But when she comes back to it, she notices that she has just bled all over herself. And it just, that's just another level of, uh, I guess, playing through the pain. Because yes. it, it's so we're introduced very early on to the fact that once she's here, she does not control herself anymore. Time is gone yeah. and it's it's like something else is driving her. 
every time she starts thinking about this and and kind of goes into that zone. And she's com- weirdly completely okay with it. Yeah! She's very chill about it. But denial's a real powerful thing. It. I thought King did a good job writing her in that brief mm. amount of time because we haven't been with her very long, but we already know that it is not normal for her to just be like, well, yeah, whatever. Mm-hmm. I can't stop thinking about this, but that's okay. It's fine. And the way Peter reacts to it, sh- the way she doesn't react to his reaction is also very telling. The fact of the matter that she notices, oh, I've lost nearly seven hours out here, bled through my pants, and am scraped up and have been digging, but she still has a hard time leaving and going home that night. She still mm-hmm. doesn't want to go. And, and this is also, she thinks about calling calling someone to report this and she's like i could call the police or i could call a poet (laughs) that's the angle let's call the poet and that's when we find out gardner is on this poetry tour which is a thing i guess i guess yeah the (laughs) northeast i mean i bought it (laughs) (laughs) sounds right and she finally comes to the idea she sees how much she's dug out and takes uh, a piece of paper and a compass and tries to determine how big this thing is and determines it could be 300 yards in circumference buried underneath the earth. Okay, was it just me or did this seem like nonsense? Absolute nonsense. Because it's <laughs> it's purely just guessing. That's all it is. Yeah, she, she like literally draws, she admits, she's like, I'm not handy, I've never been good at drawing, and she's doing it from memory. Yeah. Like, she goes back to her house, and she's like, eh, it probably looked like this, and if I set the compass to a completely random <laughs> size, arbitrary angle. Oh my god, it's so big. <laughs> Which, of course, turns out to be completely cracked, yeah. but that's beside the point. Yeah, and that's when she decides that she knows it's a flying saucer. And then our first, beyond the absence of time, the first real spooky thing happens. She's feeding Peter, and as we discussed, Peter's getting old. He's he's on his deathbed almost. She has to, like, mix his food with water so that it's easier to chew. And she looks into his eye, and this cataract that was making him blind in one eye is almost completely gone. Every time she talks about Peter and describes anything, I'm like making this grimace because you guys know how I feel about animals being hurt in things. I think that's part of the reason I had trouble my first read through getting into it because it's like, oh, my God, this dog is going to die. And I don't want to read that. I don't want to read about (laughs) it. He's it. I don't know. They just have this wonderful life together, this very peaceful kind of country, simple life. And it's just it's just peppered with sadness. You, yeah, you just know. Well, I mean, it's the first few chapters of a King novel. You know, something bad's going to happen. <laughs> Weirdly, though, the, the opposite of something bad is happening. Yeah. Theoretically. Yeah, because she takes him to the vet, which is in a, a nearby town a couple miles away, I believe. What, like three chapters in, and this is the first, the first exciting <laughs> thing that happens is it's- a vet appointment. <laughs> I actually did have a really hard time with the vet appointment scene because she really, yeah, not the first part because she gets him in there. the The vet checks him out, and she even notices that he's like leaping off the table, yeah, uh, with with more mobility than he normally would be. And she's kind of frustrated because her vet isn't as impressed or doesn't seem to notice. And it's like a, a newer vet than mm-hmm. what she used to have. And she makes this comment like, "If maybe if he had noticed, I could have admitted something." 
And that would have sort of like, oh, it's his fault. I, I could have been saved, but he didn't notice this. And so it didn't force my hand, force me to admit it. I don't think she would have admitted that she'd been digging something in the woods. No, of course not. I, just, that denial is interesting because it's another character that you don't even realize at first has an addiction problem. Oh, for mm-hmm. sure. I do. One of the things that I thought was really neat is that King makes a Benjamin Button reference it, before yeah. it was a reference. No, well, it was a book. It it's was a, a very book. old yeah. book. Yeah, so, Stephen but, King but, predicts but Benjamin so many, Button movie. <laughs> but so many people didn't know about it until yeah. the movie came out, at least as far as like anybody I knew, really. Right. And um, so I thought that was uh, it, it's very apt because he his the color is like coming back, his old fur is coming back, and he just looks younger and is acting younger. Yeah, I, I love the vet scene. It, it was because of leaving. what happens as they're leaving. <laughs> then please oh, tell us about what happens okay. next. I only hate what happens as they're leaving because this goes back to the writing style, which I'm going to get into when we talk about Jim. But I swear to God that she walked out of there one tiny baby step at a time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it takes yes. a while. Uh, so as they're leaving, uh, like the doctor opens the door and all of the animals in the waiting room start losing their mind dogs barking and cats what a, a, a pomeranian bites with a, the force of a, a shark a, a <laughs> pomeranian bites a fat woman because stephen king hates fat people oh yeah that uh, was rough not great yeah a snake that bobby says should not act aggressively rears up like a cobra towards peter and peter is actively fighting back and like trying to pull at the leech to get these other animals and she has to drag him out. It, yeah, Sam, you are correct. It does take seemingly a half an hour. The scene, <laughs> the scene itself drags out. Oh, for sure. It, it, but I like that she points out for the first and only time she can ever remember, she sees hate and like hate and rage in her dog's eyes. And for a moment it was directed at her, which yeah. is totally new. Mm. Uh, which brings me to my next question. CM, can dogs scare away your period? <laughs> if they can, I'm getting a dog. <laughs> <laughs> because we go through the hour and a half it takes to get out of this vet. And she gets outside. Everything's normal. They get back into the truck. And after all this chaos has gone on, she just has this afterthought that's like, oh, and my period stopped. So I assume those were tied. I think it stopped because she, we find this out a little bit later, but I think she stopped like eating and stuff and that can affect your hormones. Oh, I didn't even think about oh, that. Well, I think it's the obvious that she's outside of the influence of the ship. That too. Yeah. <laughs> but we, we kind of figure that out later because she dro- has to drive out of town or into town rather because she, like we've said, she's kind of a hermit and she lives on the outskirts of Haven. That night, there's a big storm in Haven and the power goes out, except for there's still some light shining through her house because Bobby opens her eyes and there's just this eerie green light, very reminiscent of the green light from her dreams. And she's looking around to see where it's coming from. And it's coming from Peter's eye. More accurately, coming from the cataract in Peter's eye. How did that strike you guys? Is kind of badass <laughs> i thought it was really cool because it i mean a cataract you might expect to see something like kind of reflecting weirdly off of it but not it glowing green yeah and i was really excited because i'm like okay he's not gonna die i'm totally wrong <laughs> it, it is like as our first like truly 
I mean, other than the big flying saucer in the ground, our true first truly like supernatural thing. But it's the first time that you're like, I, I know I mentioned this a lot in this podcast, but what what are the rules here? <laughs> uh, <laughs> what does this ship do exactly? <laughs> Which it's still early. We might find out. We we won't. It, it's just <laughs> the, some of the stuff uh-huh. this ship does, guys. You, you guys haven't read this before. From what I remember, it gets way crazier. Uh, so the next day, she she goes back out bringing even more gear ready to get more work done and she starts seeing dead animals just littered dead birds there's a dead woodchuck no flies nothing has disturbed them they're just flat out dead that doesn't stop her she still goes she still goes on digging and she even says that despite everything she knew no matter how much she fought it she would be here and she'd be digging Mm -hmm. she's like resigned herself to having no control of herself i think resigned herself isn't even the right she hasn't even had the willpower to be able to resign herself sure she there's a part where as she's walking out like she spends the whole day in her house being like i would think about i want to go out there and dig and i would force myself to stop thinking about it and five minutes later i would realize i was still thinking about Mm -hmm. it and when she finally goes out to hike out there with all her equipment she's like oh maybe i'll dig for a little while but then again or, or until like my period starts back up but then again i did pack extra <laughs> extra pads and things just in case yeah. and like i brought extra things seeming like without even thinking about it she's yeah. she's become the property of whatever this thing is she's lost her autonomy yeah yeah and now we get to meet jim gardner who wants to tell us about jim gardner you both seem very excited. <laughs> you you came in, Aaron. You said you had so many notes about Jim. <laughs> I would love to hear your opinion. That we're going to agree on a lot of it. I well, I think pre-COVID first read through we would have. Interesting. All right. All right. So as Ben said, we read this book twice, and the second time I read through it, something interesting happened that changed the way completely that I am absorbing this story. When I first read it, it was very difficult to get into because the writing is very rambly. And Ben, you mentioned, yes. you know, it's because Stephen King was addicted to substances while he was writing this. And like you said, he said that this book would be much better rewritten and way shorter. <laughs> and I, I did I did really initially agree with that because it is so easy to lose the thread of what's happening in the story as a character's have a thought that they interrupt with another thought that they interrupt and then they come back and you're like <laughs> what's happening now i mean i've had i had to read paragraphs over and over again just to follow that thread i'm gonna get a little bit real which i know we try we don't always do that we try to keep things somewhat lighthearted, but i think it's worth mentioning because during isolation we've seen the rise of alcoholism depression suicide and i don't want people to think that they're alone or they should be ashamed of that And I recently almost lost someone very close to me because of late stage alcoholism. And reading about Jim after that experience is something that I'm kind of still dealing with. It's so different now, not only because the struggle is very real and visceral to me, but it's what is behind that struggle. And it's a person, Stephen King, on the edge of life. And this book has become a physical representation of King's struggles with substance abuse and you read it and you're witnessing something tragic and alarming. And fortunately, he got help 
so it didn't end badly. So it's tragic, alarming, and hopeful in a way. Addiction is a disease, one with a lot of stigma surrounding it. And it isolates people, and so then it becomes this vicious cycle because you're isolated. And this book puts King's experience, something a lot of people can unfortunately relate to, right out there in the light. It's very vulnerable, and the rhythm of the writing is, it's initially a roadblock, but now it represents his journey, my journey, our journey, so many people who have experienced this. And it's like a milestone and a marker in his life that I think has a lot of significance, or it should have a lot of significance, because... Sometimes we're really fortunate and we can look back and say, shit, I, I really learned that lesson the hardest way possible and that sucked, but I learned it and now I've taken it and I've made it something positive in my life because I've created something good out of that. We don't always get that opportunity. For me, I don't want to do what I was initially doing, which was dismissing this book as the ramblings of an addict because I think that diminishes King's journey and the journey that others have gone on and will continue to go on. And this book represents for me that it's not too late to get help. I don't know, like I reading about what Jim does because he is very much like late stage alcoholism. Mm -hmm. It was very profound this time. Wow. Wow. Sorry. No, no that is fascinating. I did not think of it that uh, way at all. Yeah, making the book into an extension of the author. I mean, obviously, I was the one that brought up that this was his Coke book. But I, I always have a habit of, like, I always try to believe death of the author, you know? That the, the art should, as best we can, be separated from who or, or what create, created it, you know? Yeah. Although that is impossible, and I mean, definitely where he was shines through in this book. It's like a so talisman. That is, yeah, that's a fascinating point of view and is going to make talking about how much I fucking hate Jim Gardner as a character <laughs> really difficult. I'm going to thread this needle, guys. That, that's why I wanted to get that out there because I didn't I didn't want yeah. you to be like, fuck this guy. And then I'm like, this is really special to me. Now. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm glad I, I will be respectful because, yes, addiction is a very serious problem. He is <laughs> written as an addict. Pretty well. I, I buy into it. My, my problem is that we've talked about <laughs> King has some, several, unlikable protagonists. I'm fine with that. You know, I complained Lewis Creed was unlikable at the beginning of Pet Cemetery, and I grew to be. He's one of my favorite characters. Fatty Daddy is a wiener. <laughs> uh, so there are there are unlikable characters. But Jim Gardner is so extremely unlikable as a person. But I think it's perfect. And I love that you feel that way about him and that you talk about that because that is what alcoholism does to you. And the person that I was dealing with, I kind of lost sight of that. Mm. I, I started to see them as their disease and it affected our relationship. And I had to remind myself, I'm looking at the alcohol, I'm not looking at them anymore. Like, right. I don't even know who they are. There is evidence in the book, however, that the alcoholism was the end result, but it was not the base cause of why he is like this. Because it talks about how uh, near the end of this section that we read, he's reflecting 
on his life. And he's reflecting on a lot of things, but he is saying that, what's the line? When I was young, when I was in my 20s, I burned all the time. And when I was in my 30s, I burned some of the time. And now I only burn when I drink. So he is a tragic character. But I just get the feeling he's always been an asshole. (laughs) (laughs) And there is definitely evidence to back up that even without alcohol, Jim's not the greatest dude. Yeah. I And... Regardless of, uh, like, the the alcoholism, that angle of his character giving us an unlikable character is fine. We've had characters with addiction problems. But being like, here's our protagonist. Arguably, Jim is our protagonist of this book from here on out. Yeah. Here's our protagonist. He's an alcoholic. Okay, I can empathize with that. I've dealt with alcoholism myself. Like, I can empathize with that. He's an asshole. I can empathize with that. (laughs) I've been an asshole in the past. Uh, Here's our protagonist. He shot his wife in the face. In the face. On Thanksgiving. (laughs) It's just the amount of, like, just unlikable traits that he is given. It was a hard time for me. But uh, I'm going to go in through the rest of the book with... uh, I think a really new outlook. I'm going to try and, uh, agreed. Yeah. Yeah. I think what you said has definitely shown a a different light on Jim. So let's get into Jim a little bit. When we first meet him, like the, one of the very first thing it says is that, uh, Jim Gardner went on an eight day bender. The fall started in his hotel room and it ended on the breakwater at Arcadia Bay, New Hampshire. Uh, we, we've talked a little bit about his his self-destructive tendencies, the, him shooting his wife, the, those things that he carries with him. Uh, essentially, what we get in this first chapter is he's out on this poetry tour and a friend of his takes him out with the intent of, hey, we're going to go out and we're going to get hammered. And that's what starts this spiral. He He blacks out. He almost gets into a fight because talking about nuclear energy is his trigger. And boy, howdy, is it a weird trigger. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> oh, God, I'm going to relate to him on that, too, you guys. <laughs> oh, then we're going to have another disagreement. Then. <laughs> this is going to be interesting. It gets so aggressive. He almost like gets the, the shit kicked out of him at a bar because of it. And he doesn't mm-hmm. remember any of it. But he keeps coming back to having this feeling that Bobby's in trouble. But as soon as that happens, it. it, it Comes and goes so fast, he just is moving on with his hangovers and his next blackout. One other thing, Mm -hmm. it's not a feeling. Well, first of all, lazy writing. (laughs) But I'm going to excuse it and say it's The Shining. Because it's indecipherable. But it's just the king trope of characters, quote, knowing stuff. Yeah. Who else do we know that had The Shining and became an alcoholic trying to deal with The Shining? Danny Torrance. I haven't read Dr. Sleep oh, yet, yeah. my man. Spoiler alert, he's an alcoholic. <laughs> uh, uh, the cycle continues, but I wonder if if Jim Gardner has The Shining and has no idea even what it is, if that noise in his head could be, one, mistaken for... He could have mistaken the, the quote-unquote voices in his head as a muse for his writing when it could have been the thoughts of people and what other people are going through filtering into his brain. The, the person I'm most familiar with who has a shining would probably be Jake. So we didn't get to see the outcome of Jake's shining because, uh, you know, 
how that ended. Sure. So I wonder if substance abuse or some sort of, of mental health problem is a result of The Shining. Am I just like, do we already know that? Am I just being dumb today? Uh, no, honestly, no. I, I think even bringing it up, I was being uh, very generous. Oh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's fair. Because it, it's really just lazy writing to be like, we, we need Jim to want to go see Bobby. That that that's all that is. Yeah, but uh, if you want to be nice, it's <laughs> a shining. Why not? Yeah, Jim pulls himself together enough to go to uh, his poetry reading that he's scheduled for, and is falling apart. And he reads the poem Leighton Street, which he wrote because of Bobby. I've never heard motherfucker used so liberally in poetry before <laughs> until this poem, and somehow it gets a standing ovation for poetry. Maybe the least believable part of this story. (laughs) Not that I do not enjoy poetry or think it can get a standing ovation. I just think this poem could not get a standing ovation. (laughs) Well, and you, we get the the poem, and then it says that he read it for like twenty minutes. Like that's not a twenty minute long poem. (laughs) Yeah, it's uh, and listening to. I, this is the first book for the podcast I listened to with the audiobook. And the gentleman that reads the audiobook, I, I've heard him read a few other King books. I think he does a great job. But he has a very, very serious old man voice. And hearing his hearing him go, motherfucker, is <laughs> was very funny to me. That's outstanding. At the end of this poem, though, we we get our delicious foreshadowing that this is the last public reading he'll ever do. And then we go to a party thrown by my favorite character's name, Argle Bargle. I have... uh, Okay, sorry. Uh I also... So the first time I listened to this and I didn't like the kind of old man distinguished voice. And maybe it's because we started off with Bobby. And I always have sort of a disconnect there. And uh, listening to him say Argle Bargle and Margle Bargle <laughs> over and over again drove me batshit crazy. Yeah, well, reading it over and over again isn't necessarily better. It's it's very Kingian. He thinks it's hilarious. Yeah, well, and I think, I feel like that's, spoiler alert, I've been drunk before. <laughs> and I've made a joke that I thought, killed and i've just called back to it all night and it's really worn out it's welcome yeah. no, and that's what this felt like we, we've done improv drunk together <laughs> yeah 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 that happens it does so I, that that rang very true to me of like the fact that jim thinks this is hilarious <laughs> to summarize this party a little bit it uh, needs summarizing it does it really does uh it, it culminates in him Gardner going from vodka tonics to glasses full of vodka. And then he picks a fight with a man he refers to as Ted, the power man who is talking to a group of other of, uh, Argle Bargle and, uh, uh, Patricia McArdle, who is the lady who, uh, booked him on the tour that isn't they she McArdle Bargle. Yeah. He yes. calls her McArgle Bargle, the vaudevillian duo of Argle Bargle oh, and McArgle Bargle. We've already said it too much. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do like that Ted mentions the Arrowhead installation. I thought that was a really cool <laughs> name drop. Mm-hmm. But it culminates in Gardner making the nuclear power man's wife sob because he rips into all the the truth about the dangers of nuclear energy. Okay. Jim's thing. I think more so than the alcoholism, more so than just being a dick, his thing 
is nuclear energy. Yeah. He is obsessed with it. And the drinking makes it worse. And all of this. But he, he's been arrested at protests against power plants and all this. But his whole driving motivation almost is his obsession that nuclear power plants are going to be the end of the world. It's the Bullshit. 80s. <laughs> yes. It's the 80s. It's, it, it's such this whole rant. I stopped reading it as a book and just saw, I know I said death to the author, but this is just uh, Stephen King forgot he was writing a book. <laughs> <laughs> he was writing his TED talk. Yeah, yeah exactly. It, it is all so 80s fear mongery. Yeah. And does not hold up well. All the predictions, he's, oh, they're going to. Uh, we're going to lose, you know, Denver and all that. <laughs> and you go back into the past 30 years of nuclear power and uh, now nah, it's pretty safe, y'all. Yeah, we're good. It's it's the same reason that the Springfield power plant is always like depicted in The Simpsons as like falling apart and super unsafe. Yeah. It's because people were just afraid of it in the 80s and 90s. <laughs> Doesn't hold up super well. It held up for me because... I could relate to it because I, I would call myself an environmentalist. Like environmental justice is oh, very near and dear to me. And I so would I, too. Yeah, I could easily understand why he was so passionate about something that at the time did not have all the safety precautions that it has now because this is why we have those safety precautions. I don't know. I guess that kind of like was my gateway into it. I was like, okay, yeah, I, I could see, you know, just apply this now to, you know, I went to the Women's March and March for mm. the Environment in Washington and, you know, you do get a little bit mm, self-righteous, maybe, <laughs> sure. about that and thing when it's, yeah, you're, you're like sounding the alarm bells and trying to warn people. And so I've kind of felt like him, except I don't drink like that. So I've never right. totally lost my shit over it. But I could see how you would. And screamed in a crying woman's face to make her cry more. I can try that's... next time. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Well, and that's the thing. Like, it's also kind of rough because he... There's moments where he checks in with himself and is like, oh, I shouldn't be screaming in this woman's face. Mm -hmm. But here's another thing. And like makes her cry. Yeah, I think what gets her is when he's saying, hey, how close do you guys live? Yeah. To the power plant. Do you want to have kids? <laughs> yeah. Completely unrelated. There's one part in the scene and um, several parts throughout the book. I just wanted to talk to you guys. Did you guys catch on? Stephen King has said this is a horrible book. But did you guys catch on to all of the little ideas sprinkled throughout the book that would be go on to be used for years in other King books. No. Well, I caught some references to things. There is uh, something we haven't mentioned about Jim Gardner is he has a metal plate in his head mm -hmm. from a skiing accident when he was younger. And uh, there's a part Bobby is thinking about it and she remembers a time where Gardner, drunk, stuck his finger in a light socket <laughs> and picked up radio stations with his with his uh, plate in his head. And she's looking at a thunderstorm and thinking about what strange power mm -hmm. lightning has. Revival. Oh, Revival. that's awesome. There is a rant. Uh, I forget at what part it is, but I think it's Bobby goes on this really actually amazingly written rant about 
quote, the Dallas police. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Where I, I love this part of the book where she is talking about the problem with people in authority and that it all started with when she was a kid seeing the assassination of JFK mm-hmm. and then the assassination of uh, Lee Harvey Oswald. And then she compares it to, oh, the people, the Dallas police did so well that they sent them out to take care of the Bay of Pigs and the the hostage situation in the Middle East and all this. And saying the Dallas police is all of these failed. Yeah. I love that. <laughs> and they men- she mentions the shop, or he does, one of them. Yeah, she, yeah they mentioned mention the shop. The shop And specifically why I bring it up now is in this dinner party scene, as he's having this argument, he's drunk out of his mind and he's so angry and he looks around and sees that Ted, the power man, no longer has a human head. He has the head of a wolf. Yeah. And his wife has the head of a weasel. Mm -hmm. And the whole episode or the whole this whole segment, I could not help but think of the Taheen. Yep. And I'm like, I I wonder (laughs) how much of this book was just... He was like, that was nothing, but I like that idea. <laughs> and I'm going to pick it up and put it somewhere else where it'll be used better. I, it's more of an important book than you first think for yeah, a couple sure. reasons. But we're about to get into something. I feel like this episode's going to go on forever because we're never going to stop talking about the next thing. <laughs> yeah. He kicks the shit out of everybody leaving the apartment. <laughs> With an umbrella. Uh, with an umbrella <laughs> and an elbow to the heart. Great stuff. He just kicking ass, taking names on his way out. And then he gets into the hall and blacks out. He comes to in New Hampshire, uh, having almost drowned on Arcadia Beach. And where do we know Arcadia Beach from? The talisman. The talisman. He visits the Alhambra. <laughs> he meets a Jack. Oh, I have so many yeah. things to talk about with this. So the, this little kid comes up and who's playing with fireworks because it's it's fourth of july and that's how he registers that eight days have passed <laughs> and uh this kid he says the uh the rhyme for the tommy knockers the uh, late last night and the night before tommy knockers tommy knockers knocking at the door and then the kid does another verse which i didn't write down <laughs> and they they have this conversation he says his name is jack jack says to him you look like you've been drunk a long time Gardner says, yeah, how do you know? He says, my mom. With her, it was always funny stuff like the Tommyknockers or too hungover to talk. He says, she give it up? And he says, yeah, car crash. So at first, I thought that this is a a pretty tragic postscript to the story of the talisman of Jack saving his mom only for her to succumb to alcoholism and, uh, and die in a car Which crash. Which would be very King-like. He did that yeah. with... Sure did. However, something that I couldn't stop thinking about is that Jack does have somebody who died in a car crash, his dad. So it may be an indirect way of of saying it because he doesn't want to dive into his whole family history. But is it possible that his mom drank a ton until his dad died and then she stopped drinking? I guess, yeah. I I guess. I can't help but thinking this is just... Another level of the tower. Yeah, it's not our Jack from the Talisman. It's a different Jack. Spoilers for the Talisman, a book we have not covered yet. (laughs) Oh, it's so great, though. It's such a good book, guys. Man, we got to do the Talisman. Yeah, we do. The the reason that uh, I pulled that all together, so I Googled if Jack from the Talisman was the same Jack and Tommyknockers. I was like, I'm just curious. I'll Google it, see if, if there are any 
theories out there. And the very first article that came up that confirmed that, like, yes, this is Jack from the Talisman was a, an article from uh, our friend Bryant Burnett. Hey! It was written on his <laughs> blog. He did a whole thing about it. <laughs> and so that I just read you. I just took directly from his article. Because I was like, this is it. All right, great. Hey, radical. Uh, Thanks, Brian. Yeah, so we stumbled on something from Brian. Good looking out, Brian. Yeah, right? (laughs) After this interaction, Guard decides he he was going to kill himself, but he needs to see Bobby first because he's getting that feeling. So he hitchhikes his way there, finally arriving on Bobby's front step, only to be shocked by the fact that she looks like she's lost 30 pounds and hasn't slept in days. I have one quick point to make. Yeah. I'm not going to dwell on it, but he gets a ride from a van full of hippies, basically. Just <laughs> They're like, in a band. Yeah. It, it's uh, basically uh, Charlie and Andy getting picked up by the weird hippie in Firestarter. Yeah. And as he's leaving... As they're dropping him off, they all see that he's in trouble. He doesn't have shoes. He's, like, looking really bad. Mm -hmm. So they pass around a hat to get money. And Gardner thinks, well, this is it. This is my rock bottom. (laughs) He shot his wife in the (laughs) face. You guys. Let's not forget. He shot his wife in the face and he's like, man. I've never been so low as to <laughs> take money from nice strangers. <laughs> what an asshole. And he's sober now, so fuck him. <laughs> <laughs> he, so he, he goes in uh, and tells, like, he's going to call an ambulance and call someone to take care of Bobby. And she threatens their friendship over him not calling someone, uh, which he does. He He agrees to let her sleep and see in the morning. That night, he wakes up, and he thinks he's still dreaming because there's a green light coming from Bobby's eyes, and she's turning to look at him. He closes his eyes, and when he opens them, she's back to having her eyes closed, being asleep, so he thinks it's all been a dream. It was definitely not a dream. Yeah. So the next morning, he he wakes up, and Bobby basically just says, take a look around, I'm going to sleep some more and then we'll talk. And he goes around the house and she has redone everything in this house. She there, she put a, a small sun inside her water heater. <laughs> She's become Tesla, right? Oh, absolutely. Uh, like beyond. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, and they made a point in the early chapters to be like, she is not handy. I mm-hmm. I yeah. noticed on the second read through in the first chapter, she has a bookshelf that she built herself and it's shitty. <laughs> <laughs> and it is specifically, it is only there to, as a foreshadow to make you go, wow, she, how did she do this? Yeah. yeah. She redoes her whole basement. She creates a telepathic typewriter that lets her write a 400 page book in three days. She mysteriously adds a gear on her Tomcat that just says up. And I sure hope <laughs> that comes back. I really am very interested about that. But then we get the sad news that Peter has died of old age. But for some reason, Guard just doesn't believe that. So I have a question for you guys. We know what Bobby's powers are, and we know that Pete's was that he was becoming younger and healthier. And I don't know, Ben, maybe you have to hold back on this one since you've read it. But I'm, I've been wondering, so we find out by the end of book one that whatever is happening extends out a few miles and is affecting the other townspeople. But Bobby's the only one who had actually touched it. And so is Pete's condition and the townspeople's changes a product of whatever is emanating from the saucer or is it part of 
Bobby's powers. And I know it makes it seem like it's something coming from the saucer, but this thing has sat here for millions of years. And if it was this powerful, like, does that mean its biggest weakness was just dirt covering it? <laughs> does it need like a, a conduit and that conduit is Bobby? Because she spends the first part of this book lamenting Pete's old age, knowing that she's going to have to put him down eventually. And then suddenly he's getting younger. So maybe his power is a manifestation of what she wanted subconsciously for him, which was not to lose him. Well, I actually have an answer for this. Oh, okay. And it's has it's only in what we have read so far. Okay. It has to do with the biggest problem of the book, which is the theme of the book, which is nuclear power. This book is about nuclear power. Yeah. Uh, you said an interesting thing is the only weakness of this really powerful whatever it is that's causing all of this Thinking dirt. Sand. Yeah. Um, radioactive waste, when it is done, all they do is bury it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, they, they cover it in cement and stuff, but burying it is a way to keep the radiation out. And Bobby says, as she's talking about all of this, that like she believes that as she is uncovering more of the whole of this ship, that it is somehow oxidizing. And there's not a gas, not a poisonous gas, but there's something that as more of it is uncovered, there is more of it extending and reaching and affecting more people, which is just radiation. Mm -hmm. It's a stand-in for nuclear waste. Mm -hmm. Her gadgets, they call it are stand-ins for nuclear power. It's this incredibly powerful power source that is seemingly miraculous, but there's some unknown danger to it. Mm-hmm. It's it's a it's a metaphor for uh the nuclear panic of the 80s. So, I forgot where this question started. No, I was just part of me <laughs> Just because of the way they set up Bobby and Pete's interactions, part of Mm -hmm. me was like, does she have some sort of influence over what is happening to Pete? Or is that entirely the ship? Like, like, uh, it's this power or this whatever this entity is, because she keeps saying they. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They are talking to her. They are reading her mind Mm -hmm. and saying, oh, she's worried that her dog's going to die. And Mm -hmm. he... That makes sense. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good theory. I just wanted yeah. to talk about how it's <laughs> Nuclear a, all power. a metaphor. <laughs> so after touring all these inventions, Bobby tells him the whole story from start to finish, minus what they told her not to tell him. They have said to her that she needs to watch guard closely until he's uh, till he's essentially on the team. She takes him out to the saucer. She's dug even more of it out. They have to slide down because so much of it's been dug out. She, all she wants is for guard to touch it. That's, uh, but she's trying not to be too pushy because she doesn't want him to know how badly she wants it. And when he finally does, he feels that vibration. A song broadcasts into his head and he gets a torrential nosebleed. Something about, and that's when we get the evidence that not only is the plate affecting Bobby not being able to read his mind, because she she said she's tried. Oh yeah, by the way, Bobby can read people's minds. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, she tried to read his mind and can't. She didn't even want to find out, but she found out her mailman was having an affair, uh, was cheating on his wife, just because he was nearby, and she... <laughs> <laughs> she just picked it up. Uh, but it's somehow his metal plate is causing that interference. They get back to the house 
and guard notices Bobby has a new padlock on her shed. They sit down to talk about all their options and Bobby doesn't, she even has to ask, Hey, did we go out to the ship? Yeah. Cause I feel like we did, but I can't remember. So uh, red flags. <laughs> they have what I thought was a really good discussion. Uh, ben, this is where they talked about the Dallas police point of that or calling the air force and how anybody, if they go too far outside, they'll lose control of all this. They'll probably either get locked up or killed. All of these advances will be taken away and locked mm-hmm. away and it'll help no one. This is where they mention the shop. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's like if the shop found this, they'd shit themselves. Right. <laughs> And Bobby's master plan is to dig until they find a hatch, climb it, and fly that some bitch out. Can I say that I totally agree with her? And I, I know <laughs> no, it's a that's good shitty, but theory. Like, just so you guys know this about me, okay, if vampire ever knocks on my window, letting it in to bite me. <laughs> Aliens ever abduct me, I'd be like, don't take me home, let's go explore space. And if I found a flying saucer, I would crawl inside. I mean, you, ha- you have you to. You have to. That's yeah. fair. Bobby turns in for the night and guard sees her sleeping and he takes a a walk outside and he's just kind of weighing his options, trying to figure out what the best thing is. Oh, this pissed me off so bad. Really? Yes. I really enjoyed this. I did too. He's he's sitting on a stump in her yard trying to sort it out and then it cuts to inside and he has no idea that Bobby is standing in the kitchen holding a shotgun. Oh no, that was awesome. Because she can, she can't read his mind but she can kind of get a sense of what he's thinking so she's waiting for him to make a decision and depending on what it is, she's she doesn't want to kill him, but she yeah. she no, that to. that's awesome. Like that's very he, tense and like made me maybe the first time in the book that I'm like, oh shit, that was like really on mm-hmm. the edge of my seat. Is the thing you're talking about when he's like, this is the solution to the energy crisis and yes. clean energy? Yeah, my problem so- is Gardner, <laughs> on top of being an asshole, is a massive hypocrite. <laughs> he spent the whole book being like, nuclear power is bad. There's no scientific proof that it's killing people, but I know it's bad because I don't understand it. And then they find a alien spaceship that is doing something to his <laughs> friend. And he's like, you know what would solve the, solu- the solution to the energy crisis? If I dug up this thing we know nothing about <laughs> and hope it does something... He's yep. even like, maybe it has weapons that we can use. Yeah, that's crazy. I'll be the man I, in power. But I, I love his hypocrisy because when you're that passionate about something, you always feel so justified in your point of view. And it's so hard to make that connection and bridge that gap and listen to someone else. You end up, people don't listen to each other anymore. They just mm. argue, argue, argue. So seeing him first view that thing as a weapon that he could use for good. And, you know, it, it would it would eliminate environmentally destructive sources of energy. So he's all about it. And then he what? starts to think of it like nuclear power and realizes if this falls into the wrong hands, you know, like other things that have, yeah. this could be really bad. I don't know. I, I liked seeing him wrestle with that hypocrisy. In yeah, a way. He, he does. It's very humbling. He is eventually a little self-aware about it. <laughs> <laughs> but just the fact that he's like, no, we could do so much good with this thing we know literally nothing about. <laughs> it's so attractive, though, that idea that you could save the world. Yeah. and It, it makes you blind sometimes. The the thing that he says about how he, he's only wanting to do it because he's, for the first time in his life, in a position of power. And that 
this is this would put him on top for once even <laughs> even if his baseball team sucked <laughs> you know what he's the champion of shooting, shooting his, his wife, wife. <laughs> so he uh he makes this decision goes back inside and goes and checks on Bobby and it looks like she hasn't moved from the last time he saw her mm-hmm. she's back in bed sleeping sound this is a little unrelated but i made a note cuz i needed to talk to Ben about it they name drop peter straub yeah. in this scene and uh, I want uh, to to tell you something, Ben. Uh, yeah, what's we, up? We've had this our run in with the talisman already in this book, and I know your favorite character in all of Kingdom, Bango Skank. Yes, of course. <laughs> it turns out Peter Straub created Bango Skank. What? Yeah, he created Bango Skank for the talisman, but never used him in that book. Uh, <laughs> his first appearance is actually in one of Straub's short stories, The Buffalo Hunters, in Houses Without Doors. And in uh, like a email or something or a, a letter from Stephen King uh, or an interview, he said that Bango Skank just keeps popping up in his work like some kind of boogeyman. <laughs> and that's why he likes Bango Skank. I have Houses Without Doors on my bookshelf at <gasps> home. I'm going home to read that. <laughs> Let us that's know. That's fascinating. That's amazing. Uh, so we end this first book with guard dreaming that he's going to go into the shed and the Tommy knockers will be in there and he will see them. Then the green light fills the shed and he thinks if cancer had a light, it would be that color of green. He can't help but approach it. And as he peers in his head explodes and he wakes up, (laughs) his head explodes as George Strait wails a sweet guitar <laughs> solo. George Thorogood? George Thorogood, sorry, sorry. Yeah. What a crazy way to end this first book. Yeah, it it only gets crazier, guys. Oh, God, I can't wait. I, there, I don't remember a lot, but the things I remember are 1,000% insane. <laughs> That's it for this episode of Dairy Public Radio. As always, thank you for listening. Join us next time where we cover book two, Tales of Haven. For Joshua Khan and Benjamin Graham, I'm CM Alexander, reminding you, only obsessives worry about obsession. Hey everyone, CM Alexander here. Thank you for listening to part one of The Tommyknockers. Did you guys know that between 1986 and 87, King published It, Misery, and The Tommyknockers? Anyway, just thought I would share that fun tidbit with you. As always, follow us on social media at Dairy Public Radio. Email us at dairypublicradio at gmail.com. Check out our Patreon page for bonus episodes and cool merchandise. And check out our website, constantreaders.org, for everything Stephen King and Stephen King adjacent. That's all for now, listeners. Goodbye.